theyeshiva.net. Before I begin the class, I want to share something with you. I was sitting Sunday on my couch, reading something or learning something. My wife brought in the mail, so she gave me some of the envelopes, and I was reviewing them, and my eyes were uh, taken as I saw an address from Otisville, Otisville Prison, upstate, where I visited a few weeks ago, before, uh, like three or four weeks ago. So I opened the envelope, I received the letter, and I want to read to you the letter. Here's the letter. Gimel Tavis. So that was written on uh, Thursday or Friday. Huh? Wednesday morning. Thursday. That was the night, thir- thir- Thursday, last Thursday. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, when we met during your visit here, I told you that I had been a big fan for well over a decade. As a small town Jew, it was also great to be able to be here in Otisville with Rabbi Rabashkin. Throughout Hanukkah, as well as all other Yom Toivim, Rabbi Rabashkin kept predicting would all get released. He would even refuse to sign requests for participating in future holidays, saying he expected to be released. After Mincha, the last day of Hanukkah, I joked with him, saying it was now almost the end of Zoyz Hanukkah, and we're still here. Less than 10 minutes later, high-level staff came to his room and told him he had to leave immediately. They had new clothes at the front door and a car waiting in the lot for him. They didn't even let him pack his stuff. They're still doing that now. This was just like with Yosef, minus the haircut and the shave. (laughs) Just wanted you to know about a nace First hand, Hillel Yagil Hakayan, number 00362111. That's the letter. We're hearing everything from this side of the wall, but here is a report from the other side. So Yaakov Avinu is about to say goodbye to his children, to his entire family, and to the world, to the earth. That is the opening of Parshas Vayichi. He arrived in Egypt to meet his son Yosef. He relocated from the Holy Land into Egypt, to Egypt. 
He lives there for 17 years. He's now 147 years old. He falls ill. He summons his son Yosef, the Prime Minister, and he asks of him one thing. He asks of him to swear that when he passes, he will not bury him in Egypt. He will transport the body and bury him in Ma'aras HaMachpela in Hebron, where his ancestors are buried. Avram is buried, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, and Leah. After this, he falls ill, and he summons, and Yosef finds out, and Yosef brings both of his sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Yaakov now speaks to Yosef. This conversation is obviously a very faithful conversation. The conversation he's having with Yosef after his illness. And he says some very uh, important things to Yosef. He tells him that God revealed himself to me in Luz and he blessed me. He told me I'm going to be fruitful. He promised me this the land of Canaan as an eternal inheritance. And then he tells Yosef, you have two children who were born to you in Egypt before I arrived. Menashe and Ephraim, they shall be considered as my own sons, Reuven and Shimon. In other words, when you speak about the tribes of Israel, the sons of, Yosef, of Yaakov, you have Ephraim and Menashe, even though they're grandchildren, but their status is as one of children. Then he inserts a posseh. And this verse has startled most of the commentators. I'm going to quote it. Yaakov is in the middle of telling Yosef that these two children of his will be considered like children, not grandchildren. When I was returning from Padon, Padon is the city where he spent 20 years with his father-in-law, Lava. When I was returning from Mesopotamia back to Israel, back to the land of Canaan, Rachel died on me in the land of Canaan on the road. Some distance of land till we would arrive in a city called Ephrat. Ephrat, Ephrat. And I buried her there in the path leading to Ephras, in a city called Beis Lechem, or Beis Lechem. This is an isolated verse that stands out, where suddenly Yaakov begins talking about the circumstances of Rachel's passing and where she was buried. Then he sees his children. He asks him, who are these people? Yosef says, these are my children. Yaakov says, I want to bless them. He kisses them. He embraces them. He tells Yosef, I never imagined I would see your face. I never, saw, I never thought I'll see you again. And now God showed me not only you, but also your children. And the Torah continues with the story of his blessings to Ephraim and Menashe, the famous crossing of the hands, etc. Following which, Yaakov summons all of his children and gives each of them a message before his final breath, before he passes on. The question is, we understand Yosef being summoned to Yaakov and Yaakov asking him to bury him in Eretz Yisrael, not in Egypt. We understand him talking to him about 
Ephraim and Menashe being considered as his own children as one of the Shvatim. In terms of different halachas, like splitting up of the land, was to Ephraim and Menashe and other things. We understand why he wants to bless his children. How does this pasa come in here? With no sequence, no connection to before or after. He just says, when I came back from Padan, Rachel died on me on the road and I buried her in Beis Lechem. The commentators say, what's the connection? What was Yaakov trying to convey? This happened so many decades ago. Yosef was a little child when Rachel passed away. This is when Yaakov was just returning back from Padan and Binyamin was born. And right after Binyamin's birth, as a result of childbirth, Rachel passes on. So we're dealing here with a story that happened many, many decades earlier. And why suddenly does Yaakov mention it? So there are different perspectives in the Mepharsh. The Ramban, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, who was the great 13th century Spanish sage, rabbi, leader, physician, philosopher, and also wrote a great commentary on Chumash, known as Pirush Ramban, or Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, Ramban, known as Nachmanides. He says that Yaakov was trying to excuse himself. Yosef might got up, get upset because he's asking, uh, ya- Yosef might get upset because his father is asking him to carry his body all the way from Egypt back to the Holy Land to bury him where in Marissa Machbele. And Yosef might feel upset because why didn't you do this to my mother, to your wife, Rachel? So therefore, Yaakov had to justify and rationalize and explain to him in midst of the conversation what happened. Guessing or anticipating that these might be Yosef's feelings or Yosef's thoughts. So therefore, Yaakov says that she died in the land of Canaan. She didn't die in, uh, in a home, in a relaxed setting, like in this situation where he can ask the Prime Minister to arrange for a funeral and a procession from Egypt to the land of Canaan. In the words of the Ramban, Mesa Bepesa Pisa. She died suddenly. It was unexpected. And I couldn't bury her in How can I abandon all of my little children, all of my flock, all of my cattle, everybody, and just leave with her to the Maris HaMachpela? And just to delay it, I didn't have the doctors or the medicines to embalm her. And that's why he says, Mesa Alai Rachel. Rachel died on me. I was alone. I had no assistance. I couldn't delay the funeral. And I couldn't go to Maris HaMachpela. And even though Maris HaMachpela is not so far from Beis Lechem, Ramban says it's a half a day. In the Ramban's times, or Yaakov's times, it's a half a day journey by camel or by donkey or by horse. He says, that's true, it's only a half a day, but The entourage was so heavy. There were so many children. There were so many babies. There was so much cattle. There was such a large family. It would take them many days to arrive there. And it wouldn't be respectful. The body could decay. Whatever could happen, he didn't have the ability to embalm her. He says he had no... He had none of the medicines, none of the doctors. He said, indeed, till he came to his father, to Hebron took a very, very long time. And that's the same place. Yitzchak lived in Hebron. It wasn't a fast thing. 
So that's what he's explaining to Yosef why he couldn't do it for his mother Rachel, and that's why she was buried right there. He made a funeral right there, and he buried there where they were on the road in Beislach. That's the Ramban's perspective. The 15th century commentator, the Sifarno, Rabbeinu Avadia Sifarno, was a Jew from Italy. He was a great doctor, a great Italian doctor, as the Ramban was in Spain and Barcelona. He was known as a Renaissance man. He was a, a great intellectual in many fields of knowledge, as the Ramban. And he, in his commentary, known as the Sifarno in Chumash, he adds another dimension. Ramban speaks from a practical point of view, and the Sifarno speaks from a psychological point of view. Rabbeinu Avadi Sifarno, he says, and I quote, I buried her in Efrat, my grief, my sadness, was so intense, the sense of stress, tirda, the burden and stress and anxiety and sense of loss was so powerful, I did not have the energy to take it to a cemetery. I could have. We could have made the journey from Beis Lechem to Hebron from a practical perspective. I couldn't. Emotionally, I was wiped. I was drained. I was overwhelmed. And I tell you that from that day, there was an eternal void in my heart. This is how the Sepharno understands what Yaakov is telling Yosef here. Again, I'm asking you to take me to Marsa Machbele and you're thinking, what about my mother? What about Rachel? And I tell you, I buried her there. Why? Ramban gives his reason. The Sepharno gives his reason. I couldn't. I was wiped, I was drained, my energy was depleted. I simply didn't have the car. She had to be buried. I buried her right there. In fact, support to this Sifarno comes from the Gemara. The Gemara says, Why does Yaakov say, Rachel died on me? What does it mean she died on me? It doesn't mean physically she died on him. She was giving birth. There were people there, the midwives, the Torah says clearly. The Ramban says, meaning I had to deal with it exclusively. The Gemara says, in Masechah Sanhedrin, Dav Chofbeis, Tractate Sanhedrin, page 22, and it's a very uh, intense observation of our sages, Ein Isha Mesa Ella Labayla. A woman dies only to her husband. What does that mean? It means that the grief of a husband who loses his wife is unparalleled. It's never the same for him again. As the Gemara says there, it's compared to the Churban Beis Hamikdash, to the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, or as the Gemara puts it in Sanhedrin there, 22, In life there are substitutes. One can find substitutes. But for the woman of one's youth, one can't find a substitute. The woman that a person loses, the woman that they marry, that they chose, when that woman passes away, it's Mesa Alai. She died on me. In other words, the death, the way it affects everybody else is completely not the same the way that it affected Yaakov Avinu. And that's what the Sepharno is saying. That's what he was actually trying to explain to Yosef why he buried her there. The Evan Ezra, Rabbeinu Avram Evan Ezra, also from Spain, earlier than the Ramban, 11th century Spain. Rabbeinu Avram Evan Ezra says something similar. He says, Rachel died suddenly. And there was no way I could bring it to the Mara Samachbe. It was similar to the Ramban, and that's why you shouldn't be upset 
that I didn't honor your mother in the way that I'm asking you to honor me. However, when we look in Rashi, Rashi gives a completely different interpretation. Rashi generally, Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki, who lived in France, so we have Spain and Italy and France, who lived in France in the 11th century and in the early 12th century, is considered Reisha Pashtonen, meaning he is the one who looks for the literal, straightforward interpretation of Chumash. Rashi writes many times in his commentary on Chumash, Ani loy basi, ela I have not come here to give other dimensions of explanation, but most importantly to focus on Pshutish Mikra, which means the literal understanding of the Pshutish. What these Mepharshim say is a quite straightforward reading. There's something strange in the text. Yaakov suddenly starts speaking about Rachel's death. It doesn't seem to belong here. They all explain. Yosef might be upset why she wasn't buried in the same cave in Hebron like Yaakov wants to be buried. Yaakov is justifying what he has done so many years ago. He doesn't say it clearly, but he says she died on the road. Devanezer says it means suddenly. Ramban says it means suddenly. On the road, there was no way I could take her there. Sephardim says, I had no energy to take her there. I was too wiped out. I was too devastated and crushed and broken by her passing. And therefore, I, I'm sorry, but I couldn't do it. Rashi, however, introduces here what would seem not a literal interpretation. He says it from the Medrash, from Psikta, a whole very dramatic and moving idea and story that Yaakov related to Yosef at these fateful moments. And the truth is, it's one of those Rashis that has uh, become enshrined into the Jewish imagination, into the Jewish psyche, until this, until this very day, when anybody ever goes to visit Kever Rachel, the tomb of our mother Rachel, our mother Rachel, this Rashi, based on the Medrash, always comes to the fore of one's mind and one's heart. What does Rashi say? I'm going to quote Rashi on this Pasuk in Parshish Vayechi, Perik Memches, Pasuk Zion, Genesis 48.7. Zot Rashi. I ask you to take me to Maris to be buried there. I, I did not do this to your mother who died close to Beis Lechem, much closer to Hebron than I. I'm in Egypt. She passed away in the land of Canaan and Beis Lechem. I didn't even bring her to base Lechem to bring her into that part of the land. I put her near base Lechem. I know that in your heart you carry a grudge on me. There is an emotional, what we would call an emotional scar. I know you're carrying something in your heart on me, against me. You should know. I buried her there based on a divine instruction, based on Hashem's communication. So that one day she should be a help to her children. In days from now, years from now, as the first Beis HaMikdash would be decimated by the troops of the Babylonian Emperor Nebuchadnezzar and his commander-in-chief, the general, who would 
organize and lead the war against the Jewish people would be a man named Nivuzrada. And the Jews would be exiled from Yerushalayim and they would pass the region of Beis Lechem. Rachel will come out on her grave and weep and ask compassion for her children. Shenema. And Rashi brings the famous verses in Yirmiyah, Jeremiah 31. Yirmiyah Lamed Aleph. Koil birama nishma v'goymer v'akadosh baruch hu meshiva this is the Rashi based on Bereshis Rabbah and Psikta. The Pasuk in Yirmiya, the full Pasuk in Yirmiya is worth repeating here. A lot of us know it at least from the song. The Pasuk says, Yirmiya Lamad Aleph Yudalat, Jeremiah 31.14 Hashem says, I hear a voice from Rama. It's Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they're gone. So Hashem tells her, Stop crying and wipe your tears. Because there is reward to your activity, says God. They will return from the land of their foe. There is hope for your end, for your future, says Hashem. Your children will return back to their borders, to their homeland. So Rashi says, this is what Yaakov was referring to. She had to be buried there. I was told she should be buried there to be a help for her children when they leave Yerushalayim in exile and they would pass by her grave and being in her presence, her physical presence where she's buried, it would give the Jewish people comfort, solace, empowerment, encouragement that it may be a long and winding and difficult and traumatic and painful journey, but they're not alone. Their mother is there for them, praying for them, thinking of them, asking for them, pleading for them, to the point that God assures her that her tears are not futile and in vain. The children will come back. The Rosh, uh, parenthetically, the, the Rosh Yeshiva of Mir, the famous Mir Yeshiva, first in Europe, and then in Shanghai during the war in China, and then in Yerushalayim, so one of its great leaders was a man named Reb Chaim Shmulevich. And he was a very, very emotional person. And after the Six-Day War, Israel liberated Beis Lechem, including Kever Rachel, the tomb of Rachel. So one of his students shared with me that he took many of his students, a very large group of students from the Mir Yeshiva, to go daven at Kever Rachel, at the tomb of Rachel. And when they came there, he started to speak to her at the tomb of Rachel, of Rachel. He started to speak. And Reb Chaim said, Reb Chaim Shmulevich said, Mama Rachel, Mother Rachel, the Rebish Tazakt in Yirmiya, Mini Koylech Mi Bechi Veinayach Midima. Hashem says in Yirmiya, he hears a voice, Rachel is crying, and he says through the Navi, Stop crying, Rachel. Stop crying. I don't like to hear you crying. 
Don't worry, it'll be good. V'shava banim legvulam. He said, Unichzag, and I say, Vain, mama, vain. You don't stop crying because if God is telling you to stop crying, then I tell you, don't stop crying if your tears have such an impact. Now, the question I want to raise is. preliminary question. First question is Rashi, who as I said, always says, my mission is to explain pshat. There are Madrashim. Madrashim is another layer of interpretation. Why does he reject all of the other alternative interpretations which are very straightforward? Yaakov is giving a reason. She died suddenly on the road. I'm a young father. Remember, there's a newborn baby, Binyamin. Ramban says it makes a lot of sense. Benjamin was a newborn. Everybody else was small and young. I'm alone in the world. I have to take care of a huge family and a huge enterprise. He was a successful man. He had a lot going on. I simply didn't have the help and the support. It would have taken days. Who knows? Until she would be buried. I had no choice. Sifarno also makes sense. I was wiped. I was devastated. I had no koichas. I couldn't think. I had to do what I do and move on. We can understand this. Some can relate to this. At such moments, people do what they do. They follow their responsibilities to their children, to themselves, to the person who passed away. But he couldn't... It wasn't like this, where he's, he's surrounded by a prime minister of Egypt and by children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And he's at the peak of royalty. His son is the most powerful person. He's an older man. He falls ill. He could give a final will. He could summon people. He can ask. He can make them swear. It's a whole different, it's a whole different matzah. He's dying in his bedroom, surrounded by people who adore him and love him and cherish him and people who have the power, especially Yosef, the boss of all the bosses, the Mishnah Lamelech, to do this. We understand what Yaakov is saying. Rashi inserts here a beautiful madrash, a whole madrashic interpretation where Yaakov is talking to Yosef, not about what happened then, but about the future. Rachel had to be buried there because one day, and when you speak here one day, it doesn't mean one day in 10 years or in 20 years. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Remember, this is a long time before the Golis Mitzrayim will even begin. This is around two, there's still going to be another a little less than 200 years in Egypt. And then there's going to be 400 years till they build the Beis HaMikdash. And then there's going to be 410 years before the Churban Beis HaMikdash. So it's close to a millennium later. Mamish a millennium, a thousand years later. This is what has to happen. And Rashi puts this in as the Pshat is the interpretation, the literal interpretation of the Pasuk. How do we understand Rashi's perspective? What prompted Rashi to see this as the only and the exclusive explanation of making sense for this Pasuk in this story? Well, when we think about it, Rashi has a very interesting expression. When he speaks to Yosef, Rashi says, Yodati shayash belibcha Allah. I know that there's something in your heart in your heart on me. Why does he choose that expression? Because we come now to another question. Let's think about this. Why did Yosef not have this conversation with Yaakov all these years? Yaakov is now 147. Rachel died when Yosef 
was nine years old. When Yosef met Yaakov, he was 39 years old. He was, he sent, he was, he was sold when he was 17. Yaakov was separated from him from tw- for 22 years. He was 30 when he came out of prison. There were seven years of plenty, followed by the years of famine. At age 39 or so, 38, 39, 39, Yaakov meets Yosef. That's what he meets. Yaakov is then 130 years old. He tells this clearly to Parah. He meets Parah the first time in Egypt. He says, I'm 130. That's why he would live another 17 years in Egypt till the age of 147. Rachel passed away when Yosef was nine. Eight or nine years old, according to the calculations, according to most Mufarsh. Huh? Yosef was 58 when his father passed away because he was 39 when he met him. Not 58. He was 39 when he met him and another 17 years. 56, 57. So we're dealing with a story that happened a half a century earlier. It's not a story that happened a year ago. A half a century earlier. Yosef spent 17 years with Yaakov now. Plus... He was with Yaakov till the age of 17. That's 10 years after Rachel, almost 10 years after Rachel's passing. Almost a decade. And they sat and learned together. Did Yosef never ask him this question? Father, we have a cave in Hebron. Avram is there. Sarah is there. Your father is there. Your mother is there. Why is Rachel not there? Why is my mother not there? Did he never ask the question? Rebellion is Rachi, one of the great commentators on Rashi, Says, of course he asked the question. Of course they had this conversation. And Yaakov probably explained it to him. So why is it here suddenly in Vayichi? He says, because here it comes back to the surface because he's asking Yosef to carry him to Marisa Machpelah. Yet this is very difficult. Because if Yosef and Yaakov already had this conversation and had this discussion, so then he already knew the reason. So there's no reason to deal with it now. Why is it suddenly introduced now? It seems like this is the first time they're having this conversation. So did Yosef not want to bother him? Did they never had the conversation? Did Yosef not really have an issue? He trusted his father. He knew that his father Yaakov is, is Yaakov. He didn't think that his father Yaakov is somebody who acted out of laziness or carelessness or apathy. If he thinks about it, he knew how Yaakov felt about Rachel. He knew he suffered from his brothers because of Yaakov's love to Rachel. He knew Yosef wasn't, wasn't ignorant about Yaakov's relationship with Rachel. It could be he just trusted his father. Maybe his father knew what he was doing. So he didn't have to have the conversation. Or they had the conversation already. So some want to say, maybe Yosef trusted Yaakov, but now suddenly, when he asks him to bring him to Marisa Machpela, Now it's getting already very difficult for me. You're asking me to work hard and make an oath and schlep you out of this place, and it's not easy. Pare is not to, he had to tell Pare, my father made me swear. That's why Yaakov made him swear. He knew how difficult it's going to be. You want me to go on a shtickle, mysterious nefesh, put myself out there in order to bury you there? Why did you not put yourself out there to bury Rachel there? Did they have the conversation or did they not have? If they had it, there's no need to have it again. 
If they didn't have it, why did they not have it? Yosef never wondered about this. Or is it that they had it and Yosef was fine? Or Yosef didn't have to have it. He trusted Yaakov. Suddenly did Yaakov feel that right now Yosef will want to take revenge? Or Yosef will say, no, this is not happening? Rashi knows all of this, and that's why Rashi chooses three words. Yodati sheyesh belipcha alai. Maybe they once had a conversation. Maybe Yosef, in all likelihood, trusted his father. His father knew what he was doing. But that doesn't take away sheyesh belipcha alai. Emotions have their own patterns. Emotions don't always make sense. It would be wonderful if they did. In fact, to live with your emotions means to create space for things that don't always make sense. Anybody relates to this? <laughs> of course, sometimes we're taught that our emotions have to be intellectually logical, impeccable, and flawless. But that means one completely doesn't understand the terrain of emotions. Emotions are volatile. Emotions are strange. Emotions are weird. Emotions are deep. Emotions are intense. You sometimes speak to an emotional person and you start explaining mathematically why they shouldn't feel that way. Good luck. Your husband never tries doing that to you? <laughs> the world of emotions is the world of experience. And it's connected to forces that are much deeper than the intellect. Emotions don't stop and say, okay, let's figure this out mathematically and then we'll decide how to emote. Emotions draw their life from subconscious experiences, from subconscious trauma, from subconscious joy, from sub-subconscious experiences. Emotions are a reflection of the entire gamut of the human journey and the human experience in all of its dimensions, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the highs and the lows, the exhilarating and difficult moments that happened consciously, unconsciously, by choice, not by choice, when we were younger, when we were older, especially when we were younger. Yosef never suspected his father in injustice or laziness or apathy or indifference. Yosef wouldn't even think that Yaakov made a wrong decision. He had a special trust and love to Yaakov. We see it throughout the story. But that doesn't mean that my emotions are at peace. I am now going to dedicate a lot of time to take my father out of this place and bring him to that cave, and that's precious to him. And emotionally, I feel hurt now. My own mother did not get that. That's what's bothering Yosef. You could give excuses. I know. It makes sense. It was sudden. It wasn't your fault. You were you were you were You were drained, as the Sefarno says. You had a big family. I understand. It's not about blame. It's about the emotional pain that this is bringing up for him. The contrast between Yaakov and Rachel. If it's such a great schus to be buried in Maris Machbel, it's the place, the home that Avram Avinu purchased when his wife passed away as the dwelling place till Mashiach comes, till Tchiyas HaMesim for the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish people emotionally it causes me pain that my mother is not there not that you're guilty not that you wanted it that way 
You didn't want Rachel to die when she died, and you didn't want her to be buried there. You were forced. You didn't have a choice. I got it. But yesh belibcha alai. What about the emotions? Yaakov could tell Yosef, I know you're emotionally upset, and there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. So that's why Rashi learns that Yaakov told him something different. Yaakov didn't just tell him, I couldn't. You don't understand my circumstances. If you would have been in my situation, you would understand. We're dealing here with Leiv, with Malib That's why Rashi believes that Yaakov had to tell Yosef something else. In other words, if the whole issue was simply Yosef's intellectual apposition to Yaakov's request, Rashi believes that wouldn't be an issue. Either they had the conversation before, and if they didn't have the conversation before, it's probably because he trusted him. What happened here was, when you're involved in this type of oath to your father, and you know how difficult it's going to be, emotionally it's not settling. And that's why Rashi learns in Pshat that there has to be something deeper that, Yosef told, that Yaakov told Yosef. What is it? That Yaakov told Yosef, I want you, want you to understand why Rachel was buried here. Rachel was buried here not only mipnei oinus. There was no choice. Rachel was buried here for the sake of her children a thousand years later. She'd be able to be here for them. And therefore, Yosef, you know your mother. And you know that if she was asked, where do you want to be buried? Do you want to be buried in the family plot which is not just a family plot, a place of Adam and Chava. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty prominent plot, if you could put it that way. To put it mildly, it's a pretty prominent plot. Adam, Chava, Avram, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rifche, Yaakov, Leah. Wow. It's a good place to hang out. If you got to hang out underground, that's the place to be. But if you would ask, you can be there, or you could be alone in Beis Lechem, in your tomb, that when people leave your Shalayim, they walk past you, so that when your children are going into exile, they'll be able to find comfort in you. Rachel, where would you want to be? Yosef, you know that your mother would choose that. You know that this would be her greatest happiness and fortune and joy to be able to say I want to be here for my children which also explains the fact that when Rashi quotes the Pesukim of Yirmiya he says HaKadosh Baruch Hu Meshiva Yesh Sachar Lipu'ula Seich Nu'um HaShem B'Shavu Banam L'Gvulam and the Mepharshim say what pu'ula what activity did Yerachel do besides crying Rachel is weeping and Hashem says, there is reward for your actions. Rashi should have said, He quotes the word Pu'ulasich. Which Pu'ula? Which activity? Some say it's the simanim she gave Leah, but Rashi, that was a special Pu'ula she did. She sacrificed for Leah. She gave her the signs. She didn't be embarrassed. Rashi doesn't mention that. What is he talking about? Which Pu'ula? This, this very Pu'ula. Rachel wasn't buried in Beis Lechem despite her wishes, despite her desires, because of crazy, insane, difficult circumstances. No. 
I was doing this, anticipating that this is exactly what Rachel would want. This is her pu'ula, it's her sacrifice. And who would understand this better than you, Yosef? This is your story. Who was separated from his family for 22 years? Not in death, in life. Who? Yosef. How did he deal with it? Not intellectually, emotionally, how he dealt with it emotionally. He wept. And yet when he meets his, meets his brothers last week, Vayigash, he says, Don't be distressed. Don't be dis- dis- distressed. Don't be depressed. And don't even be angry with yourselves. Wow, he's telling that to them? He's the victim. They're the perpetrators. You ever heard a victim telling a perpetrator, don't get depressed, don't get into a bad mood, it's fine. Suddenly it looks like they're the victims and he's the perpetrator. And he's like calming them down, don't worry guys. He is the one who was in prison for 12 years. He is the one who was thrown into a pit. He was the one who was sold as a slave. He is the one who was separated from his father for more than two decades. And he's telling them, relax, it's fine, you'll be good. They had to come to terms with it. How did he deal with it? So he tells them, You didn't sell me kilemichia shlachani elekim lefnecha. You didn't sell me, God sent me. I was not sold, I was sent, and he repeats it three times in four psukim. Vayishlecheni elekim lefnecha. God sent me to create life and survival for all the people of Egypt, for all the people of the region, and for all of my family members. They should not die, perish, chalila, in the devastating famine. Three times he repeats the word, shlichos, I was sent. As we spoke in our class last year, were you sold or were you sent? So why did he separate from his family for so many years? He came to terms with it. He could celebrate his life. He did not look at himself as a nebach situation filled with anger and horror and devastation because he sought as a mission to save his entire family and create for them a future. And he embraced it. Yaakov is telling Yosef, you got this from somebody. You had a mother. What you did in life, she did for a thousand years from now. You can understand this. This is not something that was crushing for Rachel. This was a cause of celebration for your mother, I tell you. Because she knows that Jews from millennia will find comfort in seeing the tomb of Rachel at the juncture between redemption and exile. In psychology and trauma, they talk a lot about the memories, impacts of certain visuals. And in many ways, the last visual of the Jewish people as they're being thrown out, as they're being exiled, tortured, subjugated to an unknown future, what's that last visual that they see? their mother Rachel. And somehow that's a final hug. It's a caress. It's an empowerment. I know you're going on a long journey. As they say, what do the singers say? Lola Fached, yeah? From the Derech Harucha. I know you're going on a long journey. But I'm here. 
that hug, that embrace, makes all the difference between a nation that becomes devastated, crushed, and a nation that always remains fully alert, alive, and always knowing that the journey goes both ways. It's a circular journey. You go out, and you'll also v'shavu bonam l'gvulam. You're going to come back in. They say a famous story. It's, it's a legend, a story. It's, it's well known that Napoleon... You ever heard the story? Napoleon was the emperor of France. But not just emperor of France. He was one of the most powerful people of his day. He ruled over a staggering amount of nations... But like all people in his position, like many people in his position, their egos know no bounds. And it's not enough to own three quarters of Europe. You need all of Europe. And then you try to bite into a fish that's too big. And that's always called Russia. <laughs> Russia is the fish that's too big. Napoleon made the mistake and Hitler made the same mistake. Which saved the world. June 1941, when he decided Russia is going to be his. Napoleon made that mistake in 1812. Napoleon's grand dreams to rule the world were extraordinary. At the end, he dies on an island in exile alone. In the early 1820s, I believe. Now, they say Napoleon was once walking or marching or traveling and it was Tisha B'Av. and he walked by a shul in Paris and he heard Jews or saw Jews sitting on the ground with candles and they were wailing and crying so he asked one of his generals who knew about Jewish culture Napoleon knew himself a lot about Jewish culture he made a Sanhedrin in 1808 or 1806 he wanted to make a Sanhedrin he made why they're crying so the man explained to him that this is the ninth of Av, and in the year 70 after the Common Era, which is close to 2,000 years before Napoleon, 17, 1600 years, their temple was destroyed. After a first temple was destroyed, 500 years or 600 years before that, 500 years before that, and therefore they're, uh, they're wailing. So Napoleon said, a nation that 2,000 years later still cries for their city and their home and their homeland that has been taken from them, such a nation is going to return to that homeland. So Rachel, Yaakov Avinu is telling Yosef, not just, I'll explain to you I was bound. He wants Yosef to be able to emotionally be able to carry Yaakov to Marisa Machpela with a sense of, of serenity. Not with saying, my father wanted, my father wanted. Sometimes when you could ease somebody's emotions, this is what you learn from me, you can ease somebody's emotions, it's, it's critical. Yes, he could have made him do it by force, saying, I'm your father, this is what I want, and ignore his emotions. But yeah, you don't do that. Whenever there's a possible way, you want to be able to heal Yosef. You want to be able to heal him. And this is what healed him. When he heard this, he understood Rachel wasn't the reject. Rachel was the mother. 
Rachel was the mentor. Rachel was the shepherd. She chose this. She would have chosen this over this, knowing the consequences. It wasn't just a divine command in spite of Rachel. It was because of who Rachel is. Which, of course, it's extremely interesting because the next verse after this, Yaakov says, those boys who were born before I came to Egypt will be considered my children. That's the connection. Rachel is buried far away from Yaakov because of her children. Not because there's no relationship, because there's a deeper relationship. You were separated from your father, just like your mother was separated from her husband, for 22 years, and you had two children before I came. Menashe and Ephraim, those children are more than the other grandchildren who were born on my lap. Those, those grandchildren are considered my children. Now the Gemara says here, Vani mesa alai Rachel, as I said before, mesa alai Rachel. Rachel dies on me. Because the effect of Rachel's death on Yaakov was different than any other one. Because of their unique relationship as we learned in Parshas Vayetze. And as Chazal tell us, she was what's called Ikaroi Shalbayis, or Akeris Abayis. She was the foundation of Yaakov's home. This was the wife he chose as the foundation of her home. And that's why he says, Mesa Alairach. She died on me because the way it affected him, it wasn't just somebody in the family that passed away, it transformed him completely. Which also explains why he was so devastated beyond with Yosef's disappearing and then the possibility of Binyamin disappearing in the previous, in the previous portions. This idea of Rachel right here being buried in Marisa Machpelah therefore really characterizes not just Rachel as an individual but what Rachel represents as the Akeris Abayis as the foundation of the home. Let's think about this for a moment. Who is in Marisa Machpelah? As we said, the great patriarchs and matriarchs. What type of holiness is there? Extraordinary holiness. The Gemara says in Baba Basra, somebody went down to Maris HaMachpela and he saw Sarah sitting on the lap of Avraham Avinu and taking the lice out of his hair and the light was blinding. Now, however you understand this, the holiness of Maris HaMachpela is absolutely extraordinary. Rachel Imenu foregoes, not for a decade, not for a century, not for a millennium. The Ovis and the Himalayas passed away 3,600 years ago. For 3,600 years, Rachel gives up the opportunity to dwell in the holiest of the holy. In Ma'ara with her husband and the patriarchs, the Ovis and the Himalayas. Why? For Jews who are going into exile, not because of their mitzvahs, because of their sins. Thousands of years later. But if she knows that she could be there for her child and for her children, she gives up the whole Kedush of Barzah for thousands of years. Alone in Beis Lechem, because I want to be able to be the rock, the support through which my children will never ever lose hope, will never ever lose courage. And in many ways here, you have a prototype 
of the way Yiddishkeit appreciates and is sensitive to the role of Yaakov versus the role of Rachel then, but also throughout history when you speak about the roles of men and women in Judaism. Because probably doesn't relate so much to most people in this crowd, but it's worthwhile saying it anyway. I get a lot of emails from women, <laughs> interesting women, from around the world, and also at lectures, girls, women, who have a lot of uh, questions when it comes to Judaism and women. I, I get frequent, frequent questions about this. They're very common, especially in this generation, with the feminist revolution and everything else going on, exposure and so forth. And I'm sure some people sitting here also, different things come to mind at different points. One very blatant distinction you see is that all the mitzvahs essay, Shazman Grama, all mitzvahs that are connected to time, women are exempt, whether it's talis, whether it's tefillin, whether it's davening three times a day, whether even though women do some of these things, even whether it's kriyashma, whether it's learning Torah at every possible moment, that are all obligations for men. Whether it's going to shul to daven and all mitzvahs, all mitzvahs Again, many women do it. Sfiris ha'omer, shoifer, sukkah, lulav. <coughs> there are some mitzvahs the woman is obligated. You have Hanukkah candles, Purim mitzvahs, the Seder of Pesach, Kiddush on Shabbos, even though they're mitzvahs based on time. All loyseh says women and men are equal. But all the mitzvahs where so much of Jewish religious life goes on in the shuls, the shul is a playground for men. Chazanim, mit balikoyrim, mit shamashim, mit gaboyim, with sermons, with herrings, meloift, megate. The men are very, very serious about their shoals, a lot of them at least. And some women, and women said, you know, were put behind the iron curtain, as Winston Churchill used to call the mechitza. He was talking about Russia and the West. But some people applied to the mechitza second-class citizens, and the whole action, davening, I want to be the chazan, I want to be the balkar, I want to get an ali, I want to have a real bas mitzvah like you. No one's going to go out to a restaurant and have some nice flowers at my bas mitzvah. I want to be on the bim, I want an aliyah. Etc. I want to wear a yamaki, probably read about women of the wall and everything that goes on over there. But the truth is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding here about what Judaism is. People look at certain practices and they define that's what Judaism is. Really, it's sometimes it can even be seen as the opposite. You see it in halacha. If there's money for a shul or a mikveh, what do you have to build? A mikveh. Not only that, if there's a shul and there's no money for a mikveh, you have to sell the shul, sell the sifritaira, the men have to stay home forever, Imagine Shabbos morning. Why should there should be a mikveh? Why is that? Because in Judaism, the center of life is not the synagogue. The center of life is the bedroom, the kitchen, the home, the dining room, and the living room, and especially the bedroom. That's what's represented by that halach. The Rishonim say that Avudraham, Rabbeinu David Avudraham writes, the Kolboi writes, why are women exempt from all mitzvahs essay shazman Why don't they have to put on tefillin in the morning? Why don't they have to go to shul? 
Why? Are these, aren't these holy things? Why don't they have to learn every day? They could, they should, these are good stuff to learn and daven, but it's not an obligation. It's completely up to her volition. It's the exact opposite. It's because the woman's unique sensitivity is to what creates the foundations of life, the core of life. Frankly, for the man, if it doesn't look very Jewish, it's not Jewish. The relationship to Yiddishkeit for the man is in a very revealed way. He goes to shul, he davens, and he learns. It's more difficult for a man to be able to perceive the divine in the physical, mundane, day-to-day commitment to the concerns of one's body, one's family, one's children, and one's other commitments. I got an email punct yesterday. A woman shared with me that she's having issues with guilt. Like, welcome. You're Jewish, of course. What was the guilt? The guilt was that her child, was a little baby, was acting up yesterday a whole day, so she couldn't daven. And she feels very disconnected from God. And I explained to her that that guilt got to go. And it has to go for good. It's the exact opposite. Who told you that you connect to God through davening? When you could tend to your child with, with, with love, with sensitivity, with respect, and be there fully, that's the greatest davening in the world. That's your greatest relationship to God. That is where the future of, 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 of the, that was where the future of history is crafted, is molded. That's where life happens. There are some people, we call them men, that if they don't put on tefillin, they don't have a shear in the morning, they don't go to shul, they can't feel connected to God. But when there's an essential relationship, the relationship is manifested in every nook and cranny of life. It could be changing a diaper. It could be cleaning a house. It could be tending psychologically and emotionally to my own body or to the needs of my child or my husband or my family or my friends or my community. It could be something that at the surface looks like a very physical and mundane act. But that's where the relationship with the divine is as powerful and as potent and sometimes even more potent than through things that look spiritual and look religious. And take here the difference. Yaakov Avinu remains in Ma'aras HaMachpela where there's Kedusha going on. There's holiness and atmosphere of Kedusha for hundreds of thousands of years. I don't know what's going on over there. But I know how many Jews for thousands of years come there. There's a reason we come to Ma'aras HaMachpela. Rachel remains alone. That loneliness in many ways is very sad. But she's the Akeres Abayis. She is considered the foundation of the Jewish people. And she does it happily. Why? Because Rachel knows that her greatest joy, her greatest passion is that for Jews who sinned, not for Jews who were saints, and are going into exile because they betrayed their covenant with God, not because they were so holy, they went into Golos after the prophets warned them for hundreds of years. They fell down to the lowest spiritual abyss and their Beis HaMikdash was destroyed for one reason. As Yeshaya, Yirmiya, Yecheskel and other prophets describe at length. For those children, she could have said, these are not my kids. This is not Nachas. You'll do tshuva, come back to me. No. Rachel says, these are my children. 
So for thousands of years, I'll separate from all the action of Kedusha, so that when they walk by here in exile, they should be able to look at this place, kiss my tomb, feel my love, sense my energy, bask in the glow of my presence, knowing that my love to them is unconditional and eternal, and I will always be here for them, to fight for them, to plead for them, to cry for them, to beg for them, to pray for them, and I will make sure that they return back here. Vashavu. And that becomes her greatest joy. And this gives Yosef a different type of serenity, a different type of ease. In fact, a new appreciation for his mother that he may have not even known before, despite you can understand how deeply he respected Rachel. Which explains why in the Jewish tradition there's something very interesting. Who decides if you're a Kayan or a Levi or a Yisrael? That's based on the father. Which tribe you belong to? And Kohen, Levi, Yisrael is defined by the father. Bas Kohen means your father is a Kohen. A boy is a Kohen because his father is a Kohen. Not because his mother's father is a Kohen. If his father is a Levi or Yisrael, he's a Yisrael. That's when it comes to Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. When it comes to Jewish identity, it's the opposite. Who decides if you're a Jew or you're not a Jew? That's the mother. In fact, even if the father is not Jewish. I don't have to tell you how common that is in today's world. It used to not be so common. But in today's world, it's extremely common. There's places where you can have it 60-70% of, of certain cities or populations. The mother is Jewish, the father is not Jewish. He may have not been raised Jewish at all. The boy or the girl is completely Jewish. I meet these people all the time, sometimes they don't even know they're Jewish. They say, I'm a half-Jew. They're not a half-Jew. You're a whole Jew, even though your father wasn't Jewish. So here's the question. Kayan Levi Yisrael, the father. Why? Jewish identity, not Jewish identity, the mother. But this is the same difference. The difference of Kayan Levi Yisrael is a difference of where you hang out. It's a difference of occupation. The Kayan was designated to one occupation, the Levi to another, the Yisrael to another. And the father, at least traditionally, inspired the work ethic in the children. I know that's sensitive today. But at least for thousands of years, the father can demonstrate which occupation, because of the way and the time he spent educating his children, he was a Kayan, he was a Levi, he was a Yisrael that goes on to the child. When it comes to Jewish identity, this doesn't have to do with what you do. This has to do with who you are. This has to do with your etzem, with your core, not with your occupation. When you look at Judaism, it would seem like the occupation of Judaism, Meloiften Shul, Megaiten Shul, you run the shuls, the yeshivas, the shuls, the batimedrash, that's where men shine. And they like to shine there. You could give it to them, it's fine. But if you're a Jew or not a Jew, it doesn't have to do with what you do. It doesn't even have to do with how you perceive what you do. It doesn't even have to do with how you perceive yourself. It has to do with who you are. Who you are in your core. Who gives that to a child? A mother gives the child their core, their core self, their core identity. That core identity can be manifested in hundreds of different occupations. 
But the core identity, a yid or nishkin yid, a Jew or not a Jew, this comes from the mother. Rachel's relationship with Yiddishkeit is in the core. So she is away from Aras HaMachpelah. She's isolated. Because the connection is the deepest of the deep. It's on the most essential level. So now when the child inherits qualities from the mother, the child inherits qualities from the father, Kayan Levi Yisrael is the arena in which Judaism is expressed and manifested. The Kayan is involved here, the Levi is involved here, Yisrael is involved here. A Jew or not a Jew has to do with the etzim. The etzim is the core of my soul, the core of my identity. By Rachel, the relationship is so deep, it's so profound, it doesn't have to look it. It doesn't have to be expressed. It doesn't have to be manifested. She will sacrifice the whole expression and manifestation of Kedusha because she wants to be there for her child. You see today there's sometimes a struggle between husbands and wives in terms of certain children. There are children who are very much, thank God, basking and bathing in the glow of Torah and Yiddishkeit and holiness. It's not so hard to love them and support them. There are children who, spiritually speaking, leave Yerushalayim. They go into exile. And they go on journeys. And nobody knows what those journeys exactly look like. I'm talking spiritually speaking, psychologically speaking. A mother, not always, but a mother has the instincts of the lioness. Who knows you don't leave these children. Go away from Arsamachpela. Go away from where it looks holy and stand on the road. So that a child will always have somebody that he knows he could cry on her shoulders. She can cry on her shoulders. The mother knows this with every fiber of her being. The father's it sometimes takes more time. Everybody sitting here in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Not always, not always. But very, very often. Thank God, a lot of the mothers know how to influence the fathers. So things work out. There are situations where the father is wise enough and deep enough to be able to influence his wife. But generally in her instinct, she knows. Judaism is not about what's on the surface. It's about the surface too. But what's so important is what's happening in the core Sometimes mothers are convinced by certain authorities to abandon their children. Deep down they know it's wrong, but they surrender their own sense of right and wrong because somebody of authority told it to them. They never forgive themselves afterwards because they knew right away that they were betraying their deepest, deepest instincts as mothers. They know it. But we are all social creatures and we're all under pressure. And sometimes the people advising us mean well. I'm not here to judge anybody negatively. Sometimes people mean very, very well. But don't lose your motherly instincts. Don't let anybody take it away. Advice we all need, including mothers. (laughs) And why? We all need advice, we all need feedback. We all need to grow. We need to challenge ourselves. We have to know if we're reacting from anger or from love. 
from serenity or from stress, from truth or from social anxiety and pressures. Those are important questions. But that core commitment that Rachel represents here, this is the Akeris Habayis. This is what a Jewish mother is. This is what embodies a Jewish mother more than anything else that for the children going to Golos, physically or spiritually, she will stay there for thousands of years waiting until each one of them returns. Because she knows just when they, as when they left, they saw her, when they come back, they're going to come see her. She knows that, and she's happy about it. For her, it's not a death sentence. It's not an exile sentence. She's not a nebach. That's what Yaakov is telling Yosef. This is your mother's greatest celebration. I know it doesn't always look holy. To be a mother doesn't have to look holy. <laughs> it doesn't have to look holy. It has to be true. It's about loyalty that transcends looks. Sometimes it looks holy and sometimes it looks very, very different. But identity comes from the mother. Not what you do. The Kayan worked in the base of Mikdush a whole day. Wow. The Yisrael was out in the, gra- in the fields with the donkeys and the cows. Very different. Kayanim didn't own real estate. They were in the Holy of Holies. And the father inspires often those differences. But when it comes to the core of who you are, are you a Jew or you're not a Jew? This is what we get from our mother because our mother connects to things in their core. That is why Rashi chose this interpretation. That is why Rashi understood that at this fateful moment, when Yaakov was going into Maris HaMachpelah, he was explaining to Yosef, let me tell you a little bit about your mother Rachel, and let me tell you about what a mother, a Jewish mother is for the rest of history. Yeah, what's your question? So let me clarify. Let's go through this again. This happens more than 50 years after Rachel passes away. Did Yosef have this conversation with Yaakov throughout all these years? If yes, and Yaakov already explained it to him, and told him why he buried Rachel in Beis Lechem, there was no need for him to repeat it here in Parashas Vayechi. Right? There was no need, because Yosef already knew. I mean, even if, even if Yaakov wants to repeat it, just to remind him, he's reminding it. He's reminding it to him. He's not sharing it with him for the first time. Here it sounds like Yaakov is introducing this new concept to Yosef. So they didn't have the conversation before. So what happens now? So some say Yaakov was afraid that Yosef won't listen to him. But Yosef swore to him. <laughs> Yosef is going to listen to him. What, he's going to take revenge and say, oh, you didn't bury Rachel? I'm not going to bury uh, you there? We wouldn't think that way. We wouldn't accept it. Yaakov wouldn't think so about Yosef. Yosef told him he's going to do it. He took an oath. So why is Yaakov sharing this with him now? Is he afraid that Yosef is going to be upset at him? Is going to be angry at him? He may do it, but he may be furious and angry. Is that the issue? So Rashi doesn't believe that Yosef would be furious and angry because Yosef trusts Yaakov. 
Yosef knows who Yaakov is. Yosef knows also Yaakov's relationship to Rachel. First of all, he knows about Yaakov's righteousness, Yaakov's holiness, Yaakov's sanctity. He knows Yaakov's love to, love to him and his love to Yaakov, and he knows Yaakov's love to Rachel. So Rashi doesn't believe that Yaakov thinks that Yosef would be furious and angry and he would do it begrudgingly because even though you didn't do it to my mother, I'll do it for you. Elamai, Yosef trusted Yaakov. Yosef must have known that Yaakov had a good reason. They never even had to talk about it. Maybe Yosef didn't want to bring it up. He didn't want to aggravate Yaakov. Yosef knew the pain of Rachel's death. Sometimes you don't want to bring it up with your father. Maybe he never wanted to aggravate him. That's why he didn't speak about it. And he trusted him. He understood that Yaakov has a reason. He may have even speculated on his own different reasons. Like the Ramban says and the Sephardim says. You get it? That's why Rashi puts in the words, Yesh belibcha alai. Yaakov knows that Yosef won't be furious and angry with them. And feeling that this is, this is horrible and it's hypocritical. And it's selfish. You want me to do for, your, for you what you didn't do for my mother. No. But Yaakov understood. Yosef may trust him and Yosef may understand and Yosef may be sensitive and Yosef may not suspect Yaakov in any wrongdoing. But emotionally, it's painful. Emotionally, it doesn't sit well with me. Emotionally, it hurts. There's a trauma here. I'm not blaming you and I'm not upset at you. But emotionally, it's painful and the emotion is triggered when you're telling me to sacrifice myself to take you to Maris HaMachpelah. And when I contrast this to my mother, emotionally it's difficult. It's the emotion that he's addressing. And that's why Rashi says he had to say something that would address the emotional pain. What was it? That your mother was buried there, Alpi Hadibur, to be there for her children. And that would have been Rachel's greatest joy, greatest schus, greatest privilege, greatest fortune, she would have chosen it. It's clear? That's the idea. Yeah. Ah, what if you didn't have such a mother? What if you didn't have such a mother? Yeah, what if you had a mother in the opposite way? It hurts. Sometimes we learn from people how to live and sometimes we learn from things that happen to us how important these things are for our children. So if you didn't have such a mother or you experienced a mother in a very different way, maybe the pain and the void that you have can help you realize how much children need this and how lucky your children are that you will do it differently. We can always use our voids and our pain as lessons, as springboards, as catalysts to be able to do it differently for those that we are responsible for. It's not easy, it's painful. Yes, Rachel embodies the Yiddish Imama, but not every person lives up to that. And it's not about whether it was intentional or unintentional. Sometimes it was unintentional. Sometimes people, they didn't have the mind space. Some survivors couldn't have the mind space. They did the best they can. 
Sometimes there's illness involved. Sometimes there's some other stuff. So when we look at our lives, and if somebody feels that they never had such a mother, and they crave for it, so this is something that's very painful, and it requires inner work and, and prayer and a deep connection to God and a deep connection to, to yourself and to people that you trust in your life. But most importantly, you could turn that around for the next generation. And you could say, I know how much I was missing, and therefore I'm going to give this to my children. Yes, use that void as a, as a blueprint, as a guiding light of how to be able to be there for your children, how to be able to be there for your grandchildren. Remember David HaMelech's words in Tehillim, Perik Chavzayin, Kapitel 27. Ki avi v'imi azavuni v'ashem yasveni. My father and mother may have abandoned me, but God, God took me in. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.